worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever breathe. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Trinity Heights. Uh, great to see all of you here. Um, Man, I'm just, I love that. If you haven't stepped out on the balcony this morning, you just need to step out and take a look. It is stunning. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, I'm like a big kid when it comes to the snow. It just makes me all happy inside. Um, so we are in uh, our fourth part of our series, Mountain of Salt, City of Light, a study in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you'd just like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading from verse 17. And I really need to get myself a Bible without the red print. You know how Jesus' words are in the red print? Nowadays, my eyes just won't, won't read that very well, but I'll, I'll give this a shot, okay? So it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, or by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." Uh, many years ago, when I was 13 years old, me and a friend, we decided we were going to meet up to go to this gas station and buy some snacks, but we decided we were going to do this at 2.30 in the morning for no other reason than we thought it might be fun to creep out of the house when our parents were asleep and they didn't know and just meet up. And so uh, we're walking onto the forecourt of this gas station, and for some reason my friend had bought this toy rep gun replica, and unfortunately at that point there had been a whole series of gas stations being held up using toy guns. Because this is what it's like in England. Even the robbers have to use toy guns. Um, but so we, we walk onto the forecourt of this gas station to go and buy our snacks. It's 2.30 in the morning, and we see this police car on the road next to the gas station. And for some reason, my friend says, quick, run. And like complete idiots, we run round the back of this gas station. We're climbing over the, the fence. And of course, by that time, the police car has pulled up in front of us and we're nicked. So they put us into the back of this car. They take us down to the police station and they separate us and they start interviewing us. And they reference these robberies and they pull out this toy gun from my friend. and go, what were you planning on doing with this? Um, we're pretty scared, but uh, they couldn't establish intent. And so uh, they called, they called up my family, called his family, and they let us go. Uh, but that was my brush with the law at age 13. And 
the law at that moment, when you're under the scrutiny of the law, uh, it's kind of feels a little scary and intimidating. The law feels like this foreboding kind of thing, um, forbidding thing. Perhaps when we hear the English term the law, it evokes images of lawyers and judges and police officers making decisions about what's right and what's wrong and how to enforce this law and that rule. Perhaps we think of dusty old law books, large marble-filled rooms and powerful judges standing coldly and objectively over us as we sit fearfully in the box awaiting sentence. Some of you might have ambitions to be that judge, I don't know. Um, but there, So when we hear Jesus... Jesus' words, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, we might hear it through that legal framework. And why not? There were 613 laws, 613 rules in the Old Testament. And so when we hear Jesus saying, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, we might hear him saying, I have come to be the perfect rule follower. I have come to follow all 613 rules perfectly as prescribed. And for those of us who are rule followers here, perhaps we find that inspirational. For those of us who think the rules are meant to be bent a little and broken, perhaps we don't find that aspirational at all. My wife likes the rules. I think they're meant to be bent a little and, and broken. So just out of interest, let's just have a show of hands. Who... who who here thinks, is, likes the rules and, and, and follows the rules? Oh, yeah, the, the, the two lawyers. And, and yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. Okay. And, and, and who here, I just want to see, who of you thinks the rules are meant to be bent and broken a little bit? Okay, now we know who you are. But no judgment. <laughs> no judgment either way, because I actually think Jesus is talking about something else. I think he's saying something very different here. And the secret to understanding what Jesus is saying is in this interesting phrase, the law and the prophets. I'm just going to put that up. So the law, the law and the prophets is basically a, a typical first century Jewish way of referring to the entire story of God's intention for humanity and the rest of creation as told in Jewish literature. Let me just say that again. The law and the prophets was an idiomatic expression. It was a typical first century Jewish way of referring to the entire story of God's intention for humanity and the rest of creation as told in Jewish literature. So when Jesus says, talks about the law and the prophets, he's not just talking about the 613 rules that we find in that story, but he's talking about the entire story. So we have to go right back to the beginning where it talks about the creation story, a God who creates and a God who loves his creation and a God who then story after story of God intervening on behalf of his creation and humanity over and over and over again. And we reference some of these interventions in the very first week of this series, these interventions which are marked out by different mountains. Do you remember we talked about Mount Ararat where Noah's Ark lands and the floodwaters begin to recede and the crisis in the heart of God is resolved. God will continue with the human project. Or we talked about Mount Moriah where Abraham is about to sacrifice his son but then there is a, a, a ram in the thicket, a substitute sacrifice and God hands him back his son and along with him the entire future of Israel. And then there's Mount Sinai Israel has been rescued out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, from the clutches of Pharaoh, and Moses climbs the mountain, and he gets to the top of Mount Sinai, 
and he encounters God and God gives him the Ten Commandments. And on and on it goes, story after story like that. And so when we hear the Law and the Prophets, this refers to that entire story. God's intention for humanity and the rest of creation as told in Jewish literature. So hold that thought for a moment. You know, sometimes there are TV shows where you watch the first episode and you're hooked, right? Did that ever happen to you where, where there's just some, there's, there's so many questions that they've raised, interesting questions, and there's so, many, so much intrigue and so many things shrouded in mystery still, and you're like, I've got to watch the next episode, see what happens. And then you've got to watch another one, and then you binge watch the entire first season, and then you binge watch the entire second season, and then you get to the third season, and it's around episode two or three in the third season, you suddenly realize, it dawns on you that the writers and directors have no idea where they're going with this story. They, they are in the dark as much as you are. They don't have any more answers to these questions that they've raised than you do. Don't you hate it when that happens? You're, you're so committed, right? You're, you're totally vested in it. You've vested so much time, hours of your life in this, um, and suddenly you realize this is all going nowhere, right? I hate that. Did any of you ever watch the show Lost? Did some of you watch Lost? Yeah? It's going back a few years now, I know. That is hours of my life I'm never going to get back. <laughs> Thank you, J.J. Abrams, right? He was in an interview, and they were asking J.J. Abrams uh, about what he thinks storytelling is. And he said, storytelling, oh, it's all about mystery boxes. Mi what's in this box? We don't know. Let's open it up. It's a mystery. What's in this box over here? That's a mystery, too. We don't know. Let's see what's inside. And it's all about creating mystery boxes. Well, yes, JJ, it, mystery is part of good storytelling, but it's not the whole of good storytelling because the other thing about good storytelling is we actually want to know what relevance these mysteries have to the main plot, or we sometimes want to know how the different strands of, and threads of a story actually relate to each other in some meaningful way, right? Well, no, we don't, we don't demand that you resolve every single little thing. Sometimes it's good to have a little few loose ends, few loose ends. It says the author's nodding. You agree, right? right? So we've got a few loose ends, right? So to, to, to that the characters in that story might actually have a life, a potential of a life beyond the confines of that particular narrative, right? Sometimes that's good, but we still want to know how the mysteries relate to the ongoing story, and we want to know how these different threads of these stories uh, come together in some sort of meaningful whole. He did it again with uh, the first Star Wars movie that he made, the new one that he made. He raised a lot of intrigue and interesting questions, a lot of mystery, right? And then he handed it off to Ryan Johnson without a plan, and the rest was a disaster. Stephen, are you still complaining about this? Yes, I am. I'm still complaining. Move on, Stephen. No, I'm still complaining about this. So, look, the, compare that to the literary geniuses, you know, Dostoevsky and... Dickens and Duma. You may not like some of those authors, you may like all of them, but the, the point is they all of them had this incredible gift and capacity to be able to tell multiple stories of multiple lives, sometimes stretching over years, multiple lives, multiple stories, all running parallel to each other, and then there is this nexus moment where all the stories converge on each other, their lives converge on each other, and all the threads of the story are brought together into some sort of meaningful whole. It's a beautiful moment when that happens, and the literary term for that, it's not a literary device, but the literary term for that, of course, is the denouement, right? The denouement of the story. So you see where I'm going with this, right? If Jesus, when he says the law and the prophets, is actually referring to the entire story of God's intention for humanity and the rest of creation as told in Jewish literature, then what we need to hear when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he is essentially saying, I am the denouement 
of the entire story of God's intention for humanity and the rest of creation. I am the denouement of the entire canon of Jewish literature. I am the place where all the threads of the story are being brought together, where all our lives are converging. I am the place where all the mysteries and all the questions are going to find their resolution. They will find them in me. I am the denouement of the entire story as told in, in the entire canon of Jewish literature. Now, that is a heck of a thing to say. That, that's a heck. Look, um, <laughs> some people, this is just a, a sidebar, okay? Let me just hit pause there for a second. Just as a side note. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Jesus was just a good teacher. He was a good moral teacher. And I get why they say that. It's often based on the Sermon on the Mount. The same people will say, just give me the Sermon on the Mount. I don't need all the ridiculous theological scaffold that you Christians have put up around Jesus. Just give me the good moral teacher Jesus. That's where we get it in the Sermon on the Mount. But the people who say this sort of thing has obviously never really read the Sermon on the Mount very carefully and have never really read verses like this or understood what was being said. I am the denouement of the, I am the, denouement of the entire canon of English literature. I mean, someone comes along and says that. Who says that sort of thing? I'm the fulfillment of the entire canon of Jewish literature. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Just to be clear, Jesus is not actually saying there, one day the heavens and earth are going to disappear. And when they do, God's intention for humanity and creation, God's intention for the heavens and earth will also disappear, and he'll abandon that and step back from that too. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he, he's doing the opposite. He's actually appealing to the, the permanence of these things. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit like asking, is the Pope... Catholic. When someone asks the question, is the Pope Catholic, they're not actually asking about the Pope's Catholic credentials. They're not putting a question mark over whether the Pope is actually Catholic or not, right? When they ask this question, what they're doing is affirming the permanence and the unchanging nature of a thing. And so that's essentially how this phrase, until heaven and earth disappear, is functioning here. Look, heaven and earth aren't going anywhere, and neither are God's plans for it. Neither is God. God it is God's purpose and God's plan for humanity and creation that is going to prevail into eternity. That is what Jesus is saying right there. Interesting, very interesting perspective, I think. I recently read that most Americans spend an average of two hours every single day, two hours every single day, reading newspaper articles or new articles or uh, podcasts which are news-related. So essentially, we're a, we're a nation of, uh, me included, right? We're a nation of uh, news junkies uh, and um, political hobbyists. I, I, I pay my fair share. Um, but I do want to ask the question, what kind of perspective are we going to get about the world? And what kind of perspective do we get about our own individual lives if we spend two hours a day doing that? 
I mean, what, what's it been lately? Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, right? And he's 11 million followers. It's probably more now. And they've put some warnings on, on some of his interviews. So now it's easier to find the exciting podcasts, right? <laughs> I don't think they've thought that one through. But, but here's, here's the thing. What kind of view of the world are we going to get with two hours a day of that and nothing else to balance it out? Or even if you've got some other stuff, you're trying to balance it out with. And what, what kind of perspective on the world will we have? And what kind of perspective will we have of our own lives? Here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, we will look around the world and we will see that humanity's destiny is in the hands of the power that be. In Jesus' day, it was Rome. Of course, in our day, it's America. And that's that. Second, it makes me a spectator, a bystander, watching the world mediated through the news cycle and nothing I do, no decision I make, makes any difference. It diminishes, essentially, this life that I'm living, the life that's right in front of me, which Tish Harrison Warren describes it like this. She says, this life, where marriages struggle, this one, where we aren't living as we thought we might or as we hoped that we would. This one, where we are weary, where we want to make a difference but aren't sure where to start, where we have to get dinner on the table or the kids' teeth brushed, where we have back pain and boring weeks, where our lives look small, where we doubt, where we wrestle with meaninglessness, where we worry about those we love, where we struggle to meet neighbors and struggle to love those closest to us, where we grieve and where we wait. But it is precisely this workaday life of ours that Jesus wants to elevate right here in this sermon. We'll come to some of this in the next two or three weeks, but what we're going to find is Jesus is going to talk about your money. Something as every day as money. What are you going to do with your money? Who do you give your money to? How generous are you with your money? How do you give your money? He's going to talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow, how I should think about tomorrow and the clothes I should wear and the food I will eat and what I'm going to eat and drink. Clothing, eating, drinking, money, just everyday mundane stuff. And he's going to talk how, about how we should pray, daily stuff, who we should greet in the street. Who we should greet in the street? <laughs> Does Jesus really care about that? This is the minutiae, the details of my life in that way? Well, yes, because it is that workaday life, precisely that workaday life that Jesus wants to elevate. It is my very, very average day that Jesus wants to dignify. So think about that for a moment. And now I want us to understand how he does this. He does it by inviting us into his own vast and expanded consciousness. He does it by inviting you and inviting me into his own vast and expanded consciousness. And it's an invitation which is almost like being invited to step into another world. Because it is as if Jesus experienced the whole entire history of humanity as his own history. I experienced my personal history 
and I experienced my, my family history somewhat, a bit of national history, a bit of ethnic history. I'm a mongrel, so I'm pulled in many directions there, right? But, but I, I experienced some of that. But Jesus experiences the whole of human history as his own history. And it's as if Jesus arrives and stretches thousands of years in front of him and thousands of years behind him. Now, my horizon tends to be a few decades back here, and who knows how many decades I've got left up in front of me, right, ahead of me. And then that's about it. That's as much as I can think of time being relevant to me and me being relevant to the rest of time. Right? But it's as if Jesus' horizon stretches thousands of years into the past and thousands of years into the future. And, and it's as if all of our hopes and our dreams and our failures and our losses and our victories and our conquests are crowded into this one individual. And there we catch a glimpse of this expanded vast and expanded consciousness as he talks about fulfilling the law and the prophets, fulfilling the entire human story. As he talks about the smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen, as he talks about heaven and earth passing the way, the law and the prophets, heaven and earth, the smallest letter and the least, each, the, each stroke of the pen, Think about the epic scale of those things he's talking about. And by speaking in precisely this language, in these terms, Jesus is giving us a glimpse of his own expanded consciousness. And he's inviting us to step into that with him. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But wait, the Pharisees were the perfect rule followers. They followed all the rules. They were the ones, in fact, not they're going around making sure, policing everyone else and making sure that they were following the rules the way they were supposed to be following the rules. How can my righteousness surpass the righteousness of the perfect rule followers? But, but for the Pharisees... This is the whole point of what we've been saying. The Pharisees, the perfect rule followers, following the rules, had become a tribalistic, nationalistic endeavor. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being a rule follower, right? Okay, more power to you, right? Nothing wrong with that. But it had become a tribalistic and national endeavor, a way of getting God to act in their political favor. They were thinking in terms of Jewish flourishing, Pharisee flourishing, tribal flourishing, personal flourishing, but not human flourishing not the flourishing of humanity. And so when Jesus says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying, you must become a better rule follower. There are already great rule followers. Couldn't get any better. But Jesus is saying, you cannot keep the commandments of God and you cannot participate in his kingdom because the kingdom is all about God's purpose and intention for humanity and the rest of his creation. And so if you don't care about God's purpose and intention for humanity and the rest of creation, you can't participate in that, in the kingdom and keeping those commandments. And if we don't work to nurture this expanded consciousness then in our everyday lives, our everyday lives will become increasingly diminished with each passing day. So I want to close here by uh, suggesting just a 
couple of ways that we might uh, sort of nurture, and I'm, you can come up with more, but a couple of ways that we can nurture this expanded, vast and expanded consciousness that Jesus has, that we can share in, that we can step into that world that he's inviting us into. That's what he's doing. Okay. One of them is read your Bibles. Oh, that's classic church, classic church sermon Sunday morning application. Read your Bibles. But look, I, I want us to understand what it is we're doing when we're reading the Bible. That's why we just put out a, a little short video describing one dimension of that. I want to describe what we're doing is describing another dimension of that this morning as well, okay? So, so we're not, it's not about getting the rules out of the rule book for life. It's not about getting the instructions out of God's instruction book for life. This is about us entering into that expanded vast and expanded consciousness of Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is the stuff that is written about him, and this is the stuff that he had memorized and, and, and has shaped his whole humanity. And so we read our Bibles, and we do that practice as a way of stepping into that vast and expanded consciousness of Jesus Christ. Second thing I want to suggest is this. There's two things. Read your Bible. Second one start to make contact with some Christians, Jesus followers, people who are attempting to follow Jesus in some other part of the world. You may read about them first. And in this world of connectivity, we can do that, right, in a way that others couldn't in the past. We, we, can, we can read about them. We can start giving our money towards them, finding out what their needs are, and, and we can actually just start praying for them Maybe we just begin there. Right? And then maybe we can start to build a, a connection and relationship with them. Uh, I've had the privilege of knowing uh, someone like Celestin Musakura. Right? He's connected with our church. Reach out to him. Right? Ask him, hey, what's going on in the world <laughs> out there in those eight African nations? What's happening out there? We, we're in connection with Sasa at this church. I have a friend, Ali, and, uh, in, in Myanmar. And, and I tell you, the, these friends have helped me to step out of my own narrow consciousness into that vast and expanded consciousness of Jesus. Look, how is, how is God working in this world today? So Jesus says, think the law and think the prophets. Think heaven and think earth. Think the smallest letter and think each stroke of the pen. Think the entire story, which includes you and you and you and which includes my workaday life and includes the texture of your very, very average day. Let us pray. Father, sometimes we do feel small and we do wrestle with meaninglessness and we see the powers that be and we think the world belongs to them. But then we hear this generous invitation to think about heaven and earth with you, to think about the entire story of the law and the prophets with you, to think about the details of that story of every stroke of the pen and the smallest letter. And as we hear that, that invitation, we realize you, you want to elevate our daily lives and dignify the texture of our average day. So, Father, help us to nurture that in our own lives, that we would dare to step into that vast and expanded consciousness of Jesus Christ. 
his name we pray this to your glory Jesus the name above every other name Jesus the only one who could ever say worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you Love to those around. 